This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Leonard A. Slade, Jr., a poet and professor emeritus of Africana Studies at the University at Albany. He is the oldest of nine children raised on a farm in North Carolina, where, in fields from sunrise to sunset, he learned the value of hard work. The Slade family went to church every Sunday with prayer meetings in between, read the Bible at the breakfast table, and gave grace at every meal. Slade believes that the greatest force in life, and in his own poetry, is love. I came to know him because he submitted a poem to our newspaper, which will be printed for our Mother's Day edition. And it is so rare these days to find a poem that uses rhythm and rhyme. We're not going to reveal that poem because you're going to have to read it in print. But it's five simple quatrains that just speak from the heart and have universal themes. But what we're going to do with this podcast is start by having Leonard read another one of his poems, The Black Madonna. Thank you, Miss Hale Spencer, and thank all of you who are listening. I'm honored to be a part of this podcast. The Black Madonna, picking cotton on a cold day. Blisters decorated her black fingers in the fields. She crawled on her knees until the sun bowed to her. Nine children planted beneath the stars. The earth felt good to her. You can see her now, a parched face and folded hands. She kneels in a different place drinking blood and eating bread at the altar. Comforted, white gloves feel good to her, waving to touch the sky. Hymns feel the air. They feel good to her. They feel good to her. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Thank you for writing that. Tell us about that poem. Where, where in your soul did that poem come from? It is a tribute to my late mother, Elizabeth Lankwood Slade. I am originally from North Carolina, and I remember so very vividly my mother and the rest of her nine children and my father working together in the fields, picking cotton. And so in mid-1980s, I gave birth to an idea for this poem. I wanted to recapture this experience, evaluate it, and put it in the form of a poem as a tribute to my mother. When I was asked to speak on an occasion in North Carolina, I went to North Carolina, I read that poem. My mother was in the audience. And after I read it, 
It brought tears to her eyes. She cried. She was so touched and so moved. So I just felt the need from within, the compulsion within, to celebrate her hard work on a farm where my mother and father worked and sent all nine of us children to college. So that's the background for the poem. And I wrote that poem in a restaurant, believe it or not, over in a booth in a shopping mall. And the divine spirit, I think, just hit me and dictated to me that I needed to write it. Isn't that possible that in the setting of modern shopping mall restaurant booth, you can channel this memory and this spirit of your mother? And what there are many things about this poem that I just find moving, but it's this idea of the two parts of the poem where you have her hard work portrayed in the most vivid and almost painful way. And then in the second half of the poem, you have her kneeling in a different place and in church, finding this comfort that feels good. And just the way the two halves meld together. It's really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. So this poem is in a book that um, it's really quite remarkable. I don't know. I have not read all 22 of your books. So, um, you know, maybe they're all, you know, similar in this way. But this book, um, which is called uh, Selected Poems for Freedom, Peace, and Love, seems to embody those things themes in almost every single one of the poems. And I noticed from the cover of the book, the word that is the biggest is love. And I wonder if that was on purpose, because even when you're writing about really painful, brutal, horrible, Black experiences, somehow this feeling of love comes through. I agree with you, and that's perhaps why I could love uh, William Shakespeare, who lived, as you know very well, from 1564 to 1616, wrote a line, a short line, love conquers all. I like that very much. Love is powerful, and I believe that love will help sustain us. Love will help the human spirit triumph. Love can help us address the timeless hunger of the human spirit. The world needs more love. There was a song once called and it's still probably heard in some places, what the world needs now is more love, sweet love. I used to love to hear that poem when I was going to work and turn on the radio 
in the automobile. Beautiful, it's a beautiful song, but it is a powerful song. And so if you read all of my books or just a few of them, you will see that theme pervading many of my poems and appeal by this poet for us to love one another. All of us who may have differences and yet we have commonalities and we need to celebrate that love and, and get to know one another and be a community uh, where we work together and pray together and rejoice together and where we, when we can help one another and help the world to become a better place. And so that's probably why I feel so very strongly about it. And my mother also was a woman of love. My father loved and believed in traditional religion, believed in the church. And we had to go to church every Sunday. And I did learn that St. Paul said, and I don't have the, the exact words, but uh, we can climb the highest mountain, um, just the essence of it and paraphrasing. And no matter how wealthy we are, no matter, nothing else matters but love, uh, faith, hope, charity, he says. But the greatest of these, he said, is love. And so that's, that's why I, I put it there, because if we all loved one another, I think we would be able to enjoy freedom. I think we would have more peace not only in this country, but peace in our world. And so I'm going to continue to write about love, of family, of friends, of neighbors, and so forth. I think it's especially remarkable that you have that overriding sentiment, considering your upbringing as it comes through in your poems. Just tell us a little about your life on this farm in North Carolina and your siblings and how it is that all of you emerged as college educated, um, I'm assuming, contributors to society. As I said, we went to church every Sunday and sometimes on Wednesday night for prayer meeting and sometimes Friday night, and my parents kept us in church, and we had to read the Bible at, at the breakfast table, at the dinner table, at lunch. We had to give the grace. My father would lead with grace, and then we'd recite Bible verses. But when we went to church, we heard a great pastor, the Reverend Dr. P.A. Bishop, Paul Bishop was our minister. Uh, who finished Virginia Union University, and he was on the Board of Trustees, Chair of the Board of Trustees at Shaw University. Often, he would bring this notion to his congregation. Parents, send your children to college. I heard that from him, I think, every month, and it made an indelible impression on me Parents, send your children to college. Why did he tell parents to do that? Because he was a visionary. He thought that we would, if we finished college, we, we would be able to get a lucrative job, 
and would be able to enjoy a better quality of life than our parents did and that maybe we could help them enjoy a better quality of life. And I remember my mother saying to my father, who was a little dubious about it, they were not educated in the formal sense. They did not have a college degree. They went to high school. But my mother said, if this neighbor can send his or her child children to college, we can do it too, I believe. So she had faith in us that we could go to college and that we could excel in college and that we would graduate and that we would succeed thanks to that strong, powerful spiritual base that my parents gave us. And yes, we've had trials and tribulations and good times and bad times, but all of my siblings never divorced. All of us are married to the same person. I think that's unusual in 2023. My wife and I have been married for 55 years. She's my best friend. And I would not be where I am if it were not for her, for my parents. And so that's the background. And, and last, and I don't want to get uh, loquacious here, too loquacious. I never shall forget my father insisting on our working in the fields, sunrise to sunset. He taught us when we were growing up and before we went to college to respect the work ethic and that no one was going to give us anything. And whatever we got in life, we would have to work for it. And don't go out here and having this sense of entitlement and don't use excuses that you are black and oppressed and, and making rationalizations as to why you can't do this and you can't do it. With help from divine providence, you can do many things. You can do whatever the Lord wants you to do. And, and so my brother next to me was competitive. I decided to go into English. All of my degrees are in English. But my brother went into math and physics. He had a double major. I'm just using him as an example. And others had different majors. He was brilliant at it. He was, I think he was smarter than I was in his field. But he, as soon as he graduated from college, NASA hired him as a worker in Maryland, and that was something that we celebrated, and he was made more money than I did, but he loved mathematics, he loved physics, he had a double major. I loved literature, and I loved language, and I think that God blessed me as he blessed him, and as he blessed all of my other siblings. All of us, by the way, had different majors. I think that was very interesting because my parents did not dictate to us what we should major in. They gave us that freedom, that choice. And I developed a love for English because of Edith Scott Bagley, the sister of Coretta Scott King, who taught me 
and honors English. I took some Princeton University exam my freshman year and made a high score. They said, I don't know what I made on it, but I skipped English 101 English composition and enrolled in honors English. And uh, Mrs. Professor Edith Scott Bagley said, what is your major after class one day? And I said, I think I'm going into elementary education. And she responded, no, you're not. You're going to major in English. She was very dramatic. Uh, she had the MFA from Boston University and, and the master's degree from, in English from Columbia. And she finished Ohio State University for the bachelor's degree. She became my mentor. And I was the only student in that class, honors English, who received a grade of A. And she believed in me and thought I would go far. And there were other professors like her. So the, the mentoring, the guidance, the prayers of parents and the encouragement of teachers and preachers, uh, the strong sense of community that we had in those days and that we still have. We, we are a close family and we still stay in touch. We're just so very grateful to divine providence, to God for all of his gifts and for his making a way for us and for his helping us uh, to get a college education. Well, I just love this um, Professor Bagley recognizing your, your talent. Um, and I also love this idea of the strong sense of community because our Surgeon General just came out with a report this week on how there's so much isolation and loneliness. He called it a public health crisis. And here you have this wonderful sense of community. But when was it you started writing poetry yourself? Was that Professor Barkley that inspired you to do that? Or how did it come that instead of just loving the literature you were reading and understanding it, you came to produce your own. How did you become a poet? I became a poet. I started writing essays and articles for journals. One that I remember very vividly is The Use of Biblical Illusions and John Steinbeck's The Grace of Wrath that was published in the College Language Association Journal. And there were other articles that I published, but I was inspired to write poetry thanks to my beloved wife who saw some potential in me. She was at the University of Chicago getting her graduate degree and she heard some of the poets there and I was working at Kentucky State University as dean. And so she told me when I visited her one weekend, I've heard this poet and that poet, why don't you start writing poetry? Your writing is just as good if not better than some of these poets works. And I commenced writing poems and submitting them to journals. And I was pleasantly surprised, but very grateful that some journals commenced accepting uh, these poems for publication. And I was able to write enough in the journals to eventually call enough uh, for a book of poems. And I published my first book called Another Black Voice, A Different Drama. That's how I got started. My wife saw the potential in me. I'm not certain I would have 
gone that route, I probably would have stayed with the literary criticism and published books and articles and journals had it not been for my wife who thought I was creative and that I had a way with language and I could write poems for her. I have about four or five in my books about her and I celebrate our love and my love for her. And so my wife deserves the credit for that. But yes, Professor Bagley got me started. And then Dr. Cora Green Johnstone, PhD from the University of Michigan, was very, very hard on me. And But she did it in the name of love. And we call it today tough love. And then I went on to Virginia State University for my master's degree in English. And I had a brilliant two brilliant professors, uh, Joel, Dr. Joel Wallace, who had a doctorate from Columbia. Um, he was my advisor. And then Professor Joseph Jenkins, who finished Harvard. And they both took a personal interest in me and helped to get me ready for the PhD in English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And Dr. Andrews Taylor, who finished for his doctorate, uh, the University of Pennsylvania. I still remember where these people were trained and I still remember that being very hard on me. And and they said, and Dr. Wallace told me in class one day, Mr. Slade, you have possibilities. In other words, I was not to be satisfied with just the master's degree. After all, I wanted to be a college professor. And then I went to the University of Illinois where Dr. George Hendrick became my advisor for the doctorate. And Dr. Hendrick was chair of the English department. And he did me and took an interest in me because of my love for poetry and urged me um, to continue not only writing, but to publish books. And so he was a prolific writer. He had published over 35 books. He was my mentor for 30 years. Uh, and then uh, some additional years when he moved at a total, though, of 50 years. Soon after the 50th year he died, he became a Stony University research professor. And he moved with his daughter, Sarah, who is a French professor tenured at uh, Stony Brook University. Uh, his wife died in Maribyrna, Illinois, where he retired. But he was a brilliant man and he helped me greatly. And so I'm grateful to all of my professors and to all of my friends who saw some potential here. And there were times, of course, uh, when things would get tough, challenging, but I always remembered that poem by Langston Hughes, who influenced me and whose works I admire. I love the mother to son poem. Well, son, I'll tell you life for me ain't been no crystal stairs, had tacks in it and splinters and boards, and places with no carpet on the floor bare. But all the time I keep climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you sit on them steps because you find it's kind of hard. 
Don't you fall now. I'm still climbing. I'm still climbing. And life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Perhaps I should stop there in answering your question. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I just love the way you have poetry coming out of you the way most of us um, breathe. You know, it's like the air you breathe and it just comes out. Oh, my goodness. Um, that was wonderful. Thank so you. You're... Professors and your mentors were so important to you. Tell us a little about yourself as a professor. Tell us a little about um, how you taught and what that means to you. Thank you for that question. I thought not only content, I think a good professor must have a mastery of course content. And so I studied my professors and admired that mastery of course content. And thus I wanted to emulate them. A teacher must, a professor must enter the classroom with a message, must prepare and must be willing to share with his or her students with alacrity a wealth of knowledge, a body of knowledge. And it's not just the content that we have to be mindful of. Methodology is so very important, the way we teach. Now, I'm a dramatic teacher. I got that from Edith Bagley, I think, my drama teacher. We got that in my faith from Boston University. She was very theatrical in the classroom. And I loved her, and she sustained our interest in the course content. I think I have been sometimes sometimes overly dramatic because I, I think it is so beautiful to teach this literature, to teach language, and I get carried away. And I don't remember students going to sleep in my class, so I try to inspire them to learn, for the joy of learning and to teach them the power and beauty of language and literature. Take, for example, Chaucer, who wrote in Middle English, one that opera with the show is shelter, the drift of march, and pierce it to the rota, bathe it every vein and switch the core of which virtue engendered is the core. Well, and I try to get students to see the language, our language has changed since Chaucer's time. When April showers with sweetness, that's what he was talking about. And so I think that my admiration of my professors helped me to come up with a good methodology. Um, I just don't lecture, I use um, Myriad methods. I might lecture sometimes, and then I will have small groups to break up, and then I would um, have that Socratic approach where I would question them and, and so forth. And as a result, I twice received the Excellence in Teaching Award uh, from my peers, and I've been the Collins Fellowship and the Collins Award and the Citizen Academic Laureate and 
award and other awards uh, that I probably didn't deserve, but I, of all the awards I have received, I, I valued the teaching award because I have devoted 55 years of full-time teaching. I think that's quite a record and I thought it was time to go home after that. Thanks to my wife encouraging me to become a professor emeritus. And so that, that, let you know, I mean, and my students have gone on, some of them to get doctorates, to, and they've gotten law degrees, they've become ministers. That's what it's all about, helping the next generation um, become great in their work, all that they do, and so that they can make changes in their communities, and so that they can, too, help make our world a better place. And a couple of my students have become university presidents. I'm so proud of them. Well, that is I'm wondering, I know a recent accolade that you got because you mentioned it to me in a conversation as we were setting this up was um, being inducted into Phi Beta Kappa and you gave a speech, which I just loved. If you could tell us a little bit about it, because I think it was such an important message, this idea of a liberal arts education and, and why that is important in an era when there's so much emphasis on um, STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. Just tell us a little about that thought. Well, I have probably already said some things today that I said in my address in the Phi Beta Kappa induction ceremony. I, I was shocked to get the invitation to become a member, honorary member of Phi Beta Kappa, and I'm so grateful for that. I didn't know anyone was paying attention. But I was the director of the Master Arts and Liberal Studies program at the University of Albany, a great institution of higher learning. And by the way, you Albany has been so good to me, and they have given me leaves to write and publish. So I'm grateful to them and to the administration, the current one and to the past one. I think it's very important for students to get a broad education, broad to have broad knowledge and to love language and literature and art and music and history. I think that some don't value a liberal, this liberal education the way they should, uh, they want to go into just the science and there's a place for science. Uh, I think that it's very important that students um, have an appreciation for all areas of education, um, the liberal arts as well as the social sciences, the natural sciences and the, the the literature and, and as I said, the music and the it's important for them to get a broad education so that they will be able to compete in this competitive world. I did mention that some employers did a survey and they found that those students who graduated with degrees in liberal 
arts liberal education. We've got that liberal education along with the science. We don't want to exclude the science. We need science. But most employers hired those students. They said that uh, 99% of the employers wanted the students who got their liberal education now, over those who got this technical part. They, they figured they could teach them the technical part of the job. And it's because they could solve problems. And it's because they worked uh, assiduously. They were more committed to their work and they loved what they studied, loved what they did and had an appreciation. They learned for the joy of learning and they saw um, the power and beauty of the liberal status education. I've recited some of this poem, the poetry that um, we've been talking about. Well, that, that was inspiring. I read some poems um, in my address uh, to the students and to the parents and some that were tribute, some poems that were tributes to the mothers after all Mother's Day is coming up and a poem that was a tribute to the fathers, the Rudyard Kipling poem, If. And, and so I think that's very important. Uh, I say you go into the field that you enjoy. My, my brother loved math and physics, so he went that route. However, it concerned me that, and I love him dearly, don't get me wrong, he did not have an appreciation for the liberal arts. And he and I would get into debates about that uh, when we would go home, you know, about why literature is so important. What is literature an interpretation of life? What is poetry? Poetry said Edgar Allan Poe is the rhythmical creation of beauty whose purpose is to elevate the soul. I said, and don't you remember, brother, and Poe writing, if you studied literature, he said, your beauty is to me like those nice and box of yore that gently or perfume to see the weary way one wonder aboard to his own native shore, writing that beautiful love poem to a woman called Helen, this to Helen poem, Helen, I be. And so um, I, I think we need to value it more than we have been doing. And I know how it all happened, how it all changed. During the 60s, some institutions of higher learning were permitting students to take electives. And some students I observed in my 55 years of teaching would select what they perceived to be the easiest courses and so that they could get A's and they were grade conscious. And, but I would take the rigorous courses, you know, philosophy. Um, and that uh, was very challenging, but I did all right in philosophy. I got an A in it. I loved it. We become better individuals. There's something about the liberal arts that can um, put fire in our bellies and can inspire us to do greater, great things, just as scientists can do great things too. Does that make sense, what I said? It does. Well, it seems 
I'm not surprised you will be in philosophy because you are part of philosophy. I'm so sorry our time has run out, but I wonder if you have any closing thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with. I'd like to read the other poem that you said that you wanted me to read called I Am a Black Man. And I oh, think yes. uh, it would be all right. That will help our listeners a lot to think about. I think that would be a grand exit. Yes. And my book uh, here is Selected Poems for Freedom, Peace, and Love. And I'm reading it from that book. But another book that I'd recommend is The Sweet Solitude, Book of Poems, uh, published by the State University of New York Press. But this one is one of my favorites. I am a black man. I am a black man, my history written with blood. I can be seen plowing in the fields, can be heard humming in the night. I saw my grandfather coming to America and I reached back in time to help him settle in North Carolina, leaving England forever. And I heard his children cry for freedom with his last dime and he gave his African queen 12 seeds of promise planted deep before slavery ended. And I promised him honor and freedom. And I, oh, I am a black man, proud as a Lombardy popular, stronger than granddaddy's roots, defying place and time and history, crucified, alive, immortal, look at me and be healed. Thank you. That last line, you know, instead of all the bitterness and divisiveness that we've been feeling as a nation lately, look at me and be healed. I love it. Thank you, Leonard A. Slade, Jr. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.